0: All right, go ahead and turn to Genesis chapter 11. Our primary passage this morning will be chapter 12, verses 1 through 9, but um, Genesis 11, 27 through 32 is sort of parenthetical to chapter 12, so we'll read that as well. I want to start by kind of giving us a timeline of where we are, just simply because I find this rather interesting. So we're starting, as Dustin mentioned this morning, the story of Abraham. And as you'll hear me, I hopefully remember to do this at the end, to remind us that it isn't so much a story about Abraham, it? a story about God. I mean, really, when we look at the Scriptures, everything that the Scriptures are, are designed to do is to teach us, to reveal to us... Who God is. And so when we do a character study of Abraham, it really isn't so much about Abraham, it's about what it teaches us about God and who God is. And so, as I look at this, um, I always like to put things sort of into perspective from a timeline. And so I want to kind of tell us, or tell you where we at timeline wise with this because we went through the first 11 chapters of Genesis a while back which takes us all the way up to the Tower of Babel and some things you may not have thought about Abraham was born approximately 380 years or so after the flood he was the 10th generation after Noah now what's interesting about this is because of the length of Noah's life Abraham was likely born shortly after Noah had died quite possibly within 50 to 100 years of Noah actually dying now when it comes to debate as to the tower of Babel and all of that um, there are two primary ways of thinking about this or putting time to this answers in Genesis places the tower of Babel about a hundred years after the flood Um, that's per Usher Usher's a Old historian. That's based on his work. He placed the flood or the Tower of Babel about 100 years after the flood. Um, The Creation Research Institute, another great creation ministry, has a different perspective, and they place the Tower of Babel about 340 years after the flood. Now, those it's not really important how we nail that down, but when we think about Abraham, what that actually does is it places Abraham's birth. Anywhere from about 280 years, um, or as many as 280 years, um, after the Tower of Babel. So Abraham, you know, depending on how you break this down, Abraham could have lived about 280 years after the Tower of Babel, or maybe as much as one or two generations after the Tower of Babel. That kind of gets interesting to think he may have been very familiar with what happened at the Tower of Babel because it could have easily been told to him by dad, by grandpa, if you will. So we're somewhere in that neighborhood of maybe... Um, A generation or two after the Tower of Babel or maybe, you know, as much as 300 years. Again, not super important, but it does kind of give us a perspective. Now, as it comes to the world at this time, the world population, we don't know what it would have been at this time. But the best estimates are that there may have been somewhere between 900,000 to maybe 3 million people on the planet at this point. Because after the flood, it would have to repopulate. And so we're not looking at a world like we look at today with 7 or 8 billion people yet. We're probably looking at a world that had maybe between a million and three million people on it. Population would have been rather sparse if you will. Um, it's also possible, depending on what, what um, we might determine from ice ages and other things, this may have been at a time where um, answers in Genesis and, and the CRI and some others estimate that there was one primary ice age that came about after the flood. It makes sense because the ground breaking up, throwing all kinds of stuff into the atmosphere and, and the sun being somewhat darkened may have caused... Temperatures should drop fairly significantly. There's archaeological evidence of um, uh, at least one major ice age. Um, Some secularists would claim there are multiple ice ages. Um, Many of us, like myself here, when we think about global warming, I'm not a global warming denier. I believe the earth is heating up to some degree. But I don't buy into all of the climate stuff that's going on right now and all of the you know, doom and gloom regarding that but it would make sense most creation scientists would, would argue if the earth did cool significantly through an ice age which appears that it did that it would gradually be warming up since then and may still be continuing to warm up today as the earth recovers from such a catastrophic thing so you put all those things into perspective it's just some interesting things to play with that Abraham could have been not so far removed from things like the Tower of Babel Um, Possibly living through a very different environment and atmosphere than what we are living in today. And again, a much smaller population. Now when we come to Genesis chapter 12, we find that God reaches out to Abraham. And there's some um, parenthetical stuff that takes place. Let's read Genesis chapter 11 verses 27 through 32 to get started here. Genesis chapter 11, starting at verse 27. Now, these are the records of the generations of Terah. As you go through the book of Genesis, you see that statement used over and over. These are the records of. And it introduces a new section to the book. And it's based off of individuals and their lineages. And so here we find that a new section in the book begins with this man named Terah. So it says, Now these are the records of the generations of Terah. Terah became the father of Abram, Nahor, and Haran. And Haran became the father of Lot. Haran died in the presence of his father, Terah, in the land of his birth in Ur of the Chaldeans. Abraham and Nahor took wives for themselves. The name of Abraham's wife was Sarai, and the name of Nahor's wife was Milcah, the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah and Ishka. Sarai was barren, she had no child. Terah took Abram his son, and Lot, the son of Haran, his grandson, and Sarai his daughter-in-law, his son, Abraham's, or Abram's wife, and they went out together from Ur of the Chaldeans in order to enter the land of Canaan. And they went as far as Haran and settled there. The days of Terah were two hundred and five years, and Terah died in Haran. So it's an introduction to what's going to take place when it comes to the story of Abraham. So the chronology of what happens here is this. Terah lived in Ur with his three sons, Abram, Nahor, and Herod. Now, nobody really knows for sure where Ur was. There's three possible different locations given by scholars. It's not really sure exactly where that was. We just know that it wasn't in what is now the land of Israel or the land of Canaan. It was outside of that. Now, Haran had born a son, Lot. We're going to learn a little bit about Lot in future passages. But Haran then actually died. It was one of Abram's brothers. Well, Abram and Nahor then took wives. Sarah was given to Abraham or taken by Abraham in marriage. Nahor married Milcah. But then, it was during this time, and we haven't seen it yet, we'll see it in a second, it was during this time here, these first few verses we just read, when Abram received the call from God to go to Ur. That's what causes his father to take the family and move. It's just not mentioned there in those verses quite yet, it's mentioned as we get into chapter 12. But it was during this time that I just read that Abram received his call from God to leave Ur and go to the land of Canaan and so Abram receives that word his father Abraham, Sarai and Lot then all leave for Canaan his brother Nahor stays behind and so Terah takes his family most of his family leaves and begins to make their way to the land of Canaan along the way they stopped in Haran and that's where Terah then died and so you begin this journey here From the land of Ur to the land of Canaan. And that takes us into chapter 12 then. As we look at this, I'm going to break down chapter 12 primarily into two pieces, if you will. The first is this. God called Abram to forsake his old life for the promise of a new life and to be a blessing to mankind. So that will be our first Chunk, if you will. God calls Abram to forsake his old life for the promise of a new life and to be a blessing to all of mankind. That's the first part. The second section we're going to look at is Abraham demonstrated faith through obedience and worship in a new land. So Abraham demonstrated faith through obedience and worship. And it's going to be from those two points that we draw our theology today, which then will ultimately give us some marching orders, if you will. And you're going to find that's the case as we go through Genesis. Narrative is always that way. Dustin already alluded to this. When it comes to narrative, oftentimes what you're doing is you're looking for the theological point in the passage. What is it telling us about God and about life? From there we then draw our principles and so we'll see some principles that will apply to us who are living in a gospel age from what we see in Abraham here. So let's look at that first part, God called Abraham to forsake his old life for the promise of a new life and to be a blessing to mankind. Now there are two imperatives, commands, that God gives to Abram here in our passage this morning. The first one is that God called Abram to leave his old life for a new one. Look at Genesis chapter 12 verse 1. Now the Lord said to Abram, go forth from your country. That's the imperative. Go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you. And so we find here that God reaches down into Abram, gives him a command, tells him to leave not just the land, his home, but also it says to leave his relatives and even his father's house. What we find here is that the command is to leave his country, his relatives, his father's house, but ultimately his life behind him. We'll see that in a second here. Verse 11 I'm sorry, verse 27 of chapter 11 says that Abraham lived in the land of the Chaldeans. We believe that that was probably in the land of Mesopotamia. We see that in Acts chapter 7 verse 2. It says Mesopotamia and that's why we don't know exactly where that was because Mesopotamia is referred to as three different regions, both historically and even in the scripture. So we're not sure. We just know that it was in the land of Mesopotamia. It was west of the Euphrates River. That's all we really know. But what we do know about that area is that it was polytheistic. They worshipped many gods. In fact, there were three main gods that they worshipped and thousands of minor gods. And the Bible doesn't come right out and say that Abraham was a polytheist or that he worshipped other gods. But it does reveal that that was the background of his father, his brothers and his relatives. So we might assume that Abraham probably was a polytheist before he was called by God, meaning he might have believed in more than one God. Again, we have to be a little careful here because we don't really know for sure, but what we do have is some biblical evidence that that's what his family was. They were polytheists. Joshua chapter 24. Turn to Joshua chapter 24 with me. Joshua chapter 24, look at verse 2, Joshua said to all the people, I'll let you turn there, I hear your page is turning, I'll give you a little bit of time to get there. Joshua chapter 24, verse 2, Dustin laughs at me because I actually put the page numbers from my Bible in my notes. And the reason why that is, not that I don't know where the stuff can be found, but this new thin line Bible here. I'll go to move and I'll grab 50 pages and I jump past the book and then I flip back and I'm too... Far. It's just easier to go to the page number. So I'll give you a page number this morning to help you get there faster, but it's not going to apply, right? But Joshua chapter 24, verse 2. Notice what it says. Joshua said to all the people, now this is during the conquest... Joshua said to all the people, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, From ancient times your fathers lived beyond the rivers. That's the the, the river Euphrates. A reference to the land of Mesopotamia here. Namely, Terah, the father of Abraham, and the father of Nahor. And look what it says. And they served other gods. So Abraham's father and Abraham's brother, the scriptures tell us, worshipped other gods. Other gods meaning what? gods other than Yahweh. So according to Joshua 24, it says that at least Abraham's father and brother worshipped other gods while they were living back in the land of Ur. Turn to Genesis chapter 31. It's an interesting passage. It's going to require some digestion, if you will. Genesis chapter 31. We jump down into verse 53 and we see this. The God of Abraham and the God of Nahor and the God of their father judge between us. So Jacob swore by the fear of his father Isaac. Now here's what's really interesting about this. This word for God here in Hebrew is plural. It's Elohim. Go back to Genesis chapter 1. That's the word that's used there. But sometimes it's a reference to the singular God Yahweh. Even though the word is plural, God's, it's a word that is used to refer singularly to God and sometimes it's actually used with a singular verb. So it's interesting. The noun Elohim may be plural but the verb used with it will be singular meaning we're to interpret it as a singular word, God. Just the way it works. But there are other times where Elohim, the same word is used to refer to multiple gods. And here's what's interesting about this particular passage here. The New English translation translates this differently here. Because instead of saying the God of Abraham, the God of Nahor, and the God of their father, all with a capital G, the New English Translation translates it this way, May the God, singular, capital G, of Abraham, and the God of Nahor, singular, the gods, plural, of their father. And then the verb is plural. Let them judge between us, implying more than one God. And so there's debate among scholars in translations. Is this passage teaching us that Abraham's relatives, including his father, worshipped other gods? I think the New English translation is probably the better translation. I believe part of that should be translated in a plural sense, gods, because the verb is plural. Does that make sense? Okay, so it's again one of those hermeneutical tricks that seminary students and you know others have to do to figure out how should we translate this what do, what do we do with this and it's not always so easy to see in the English but again that's, I, that's why I would encourage you sometimes when you're studying look at multiple translations you may see some differences because translating a particular verse is sometimes more science than art and sometimes more art than science and we'll see another example of that here in a little bit so what we basically find here is that Abraham's relatives, his father, at least his brother, were polytheistic. They worshipped many gods. There's further evidence of polytheism and idol worship among Abraham's relatives, his family, and other places in the scriptures here. The scriptures tell us that some of their descendants, meaning the descendants of Nahor and and that... um, also, were polytheistic. Like I'll give you some verses here. You can look up Genesis twenty four fifty, Genesis thirty one nineteen. Refer to some very similar things. And so, it seems reasonable, based on what we see in the scriptures, that Abraham's family, his relatives, were all polytheistic. Now, it's possible that they worshipped God, Yahweh, as one of those gods. Okay, because there's other places of scripture where it seems that they were familiar with Yahweh. Even some of the pagan nations seem to recognize that Yahweh was one of the gods that existed. And think about it, even in our society and culture today, people that believe in many gods, you well, know, oh, God may be God, but there may be other gods too. And So it's not unusual for us to think this, but I, the reason I wanted to highlight this and point this out is that that's Abraham's background. We can't assume that God chose him because he worshipped Yahweh. Everything would seem to suggest that he was living in a pagan culture, a polytheistic culture, and his family all seemed to worship these gods. It's likely that Abraham maybe did himself. Now, why don't the scriptures tell us that, if that's the case? One of the things we know about scripture is that it oftentimes um, will portray people at their worst, but it sometimes portrays people at their best. For instance, get in the New Testament, and there's almost nothing negative said about Abraham. But there's going to be some things that we'll cover in Genesis here that don't portray Abraham in the best light that's because it's human right that's just the way it works and so it may be that the scriptures don't specifically call out Abraham as a polytheist because it's not necessary but that's likely the background that he came from so again we'll be a little careful with that not going too far but making the assumption that that's likely what happened and so the reason I think that's important is that God calls Abraham to leave all of that behind God could have called Abraham and Ur left him there and just gave him the land of Ur but it appears that what's happening here is God is calling Abraham to leave all of that behind he's calling him to a new land he's calling him out from his relatives and is going to establish something new with Abraham he's calling him to a new life he's calling him to give up the past in many respects and so Abraham does that he leaves with his father. They stop in Haran. They stop there temporarily probably because his dad is of, you know, older in age and he knows that his life is coming to an end. And so he waits there until his father dies. And then he takes his wife. He takes his nephew Lot. Takes those who were in his care, some other family members, maybe some servants and, and uh, slaves and others that he had acquired. He takes all of them and he heads out to the land of Canaan. So he leaves all of that behind. The land that God is referring to here doesn't tell us here, but it ultimately was the land of Canaan, which becomes the land of Israel. It was currently populated by Canaanites, and we see that in the scriptures here as well. It was a land the Israelites would conquer some 500 years after this. When we just read from Joshua, they were going into the land to conquer it. That's the land that Abraham is being sent to. Now, this call of God, of Abraham, comes with three promises in the text here. Look at verse 2. He says, And I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great. Now, I'm going to stop there for a moment. We'll come back to the rest of that. There's three promises just in this first part of chapter 2. The first promise is that he would make Abram a great nation. We find out later that God would not only make him a great nation, but he would become the father of a multitude of nations. Look at Genesis chapter 17, verses 4 through 6. Genesis chapter 17, verses 4 through 6. And for me, behold, my covenant is with you, and you will be the father of a multitude of nations. We know that he had a son, Ishmael. We know that he had Isaac. From that come many nations. Many nations, not just the nation of Israel. And so he tells Abraham that, or Abram here that he will become the father of many nations. So he will become the father of not just a nation, but many nations. In fact, later on when God changes his name to Abraham, it means father of a multitude. So God even names him that, probably as a form of encouragement and a way to remind him that the promises that God had made him. The second promise is that he would bless Abraham. Look at Genesis chapter 22. Genesis chapter 22, verse 17. We find this repeated. Number of things here. Number of ways that the Lord would bless Abraham. Genesis chapter 22, verse 17. Indeed, I will greatly bless you, and I will greatly multiply your seed as the stars of the heavens, and as of the sand which is on the seashore, and your seed shall possess the gate of their enemies. Uh, There's another passage coming up here where God takes Abraham out and tells him to look up at the stars. And it appears to be at a time when Abraham might be struggling. He's older, he hasn't had a kid yet, he's getting all concerned. You know the whole story with Hagar. And so the Lord basically takes him out and says, Look up at the stars. If you can count them, that's how many descendants you'll have. It's kind of a repeat of what we see here. The the ways that we see the Lord blessing Abraham here is he would greatly multiply Abraham's descendants. They'd be like the sand of the sea and the stars of the sky. He promises him a descendant that would possess the gates of his enemies. Now this is really clear. Remember when Ed DeZago was here? He quoted this verse. He spent a little bit of time in this verse. This is another one of those... Um, interpretive things we have to do the hermeneutical things if you notice in verse 17 of Genesis 2 it says indeed I will greatly bless you and I will greatly multiply your seed as the stars of the heaven and the sand which is on the seashore that word seed there is a reference to all of the descendants it's not a singular seed however then when you get to the bottom half of verse 17 and your seed shall possess the gate of their enemies That word there is more appropriately his. Singular. So what does that mean? You've got a reference here to not just the seeds, if you will, of Abraham, the descendants, but a singular descendant. A singular descendant who will possess the gates of his enemy. Ed talked about that. It's likely a reference to the Messiah. The third thing that we see in that particular section is that the Lord prospered Abraham financially. That's part of the blessing. Genesis chapter 24, verse 25. Genesis 24, verse 25. And she said to him... Wait a minute. Genesis chapter 24, verse 25. No, it's not. One thing we find is that when the Lord takes Abraham into the land of Canaan, he not only leaves Haran fairly wealthy, but there's a famine in the land of Canaan when he arrives, and so he goes down to Egypt. And when he is in Egypt... He's prospered by the Egyptian pharaoh. You know the story where he basically tricks the pharaoh into thinking that Sarai is his sister. So the pharaoh takes him. Well, he rewards Abraham for that. And Abraham comes out of Egypt fairly wealthy, as does Lot. And so the Lord prospers Abraham financially there as well. And so, go back to Genesis chapter 12. Abraham was to leave all of this behind and God promises him that in doing that, in leaving all of this, that he would bless him. Make him a great nation. He would use him to bless the nations. Ultimately through the Messiah blessing people not just eternally, but even in an earthly sense. He would make his name great as well. So that's the first imperative is go. And in going, the Lord would then bless him as a result of that. Now there's a second imperative in this passage. And there's again debate about how we're supposed to treat this. But to go back to Genesis chapter 12, I only read through the first three pieces of verse 2 you'll notice that I stopped before we got to the last phrase in verse 2 which says this and so you shall be a blessing and I will bless those who bless you verse 3 and the one who curses you I will curse and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed now the reason I did that is because from a grammatical sense there are two imperatives, two commands in this chapter now, just because a word is in the imperative form in hebrew doesn 't always mean that it 's a command, like go and there 's debate as to what to do with this second imperative and there 's different ways to translate this the numer i 'm sorry the NIV and the King James translate this last phrase as and you will be a blessing and grammatically, even though it 's a command an imperative. That is an appropriate translation. And you will be a blessing. Most other English translations render this last phrase similar to that, but they'll say something like, and you shall be a blessing, or so that you will be a blessing. And the point there is that the Lord is saying, go so that you'll be a blessing. That's possible as well. However, there are a number of scholars that argue we should maintain the imperatival nature of that, meaning, retain it as an actual command form. That it isn't just go so that you will be a blessing, or go that you might be a blessing, but rather go be a blessing. We can't solve that purely based on grammar. In fact... Matt and I discussed this over text one day. Matt's got much more exposure and experience with the Hebrew. He's got a degree in it than I do. And so there's times where I'll reach out to him and I'll say, what do, you, what do you think about this? What do you make about this? And this is not something I think you would agree. You can't really completely solve this based on the grammar. It's difficult. So we're left with, which is it? I don't know that we necessarily have to. You know, which of these translations is best? However, I do believe that it's probably important to some degree to maintain the imperatible nature, the the command nature of this. I do believe that what the Lord is commanding Abraham is not just, go and I'll make you a blessing. Or go so that you might be a blessing. But rather, Abraham, go and be a blessing. But with that, you have the element of, go so that you can be a blessing. So, again, I think we have probably a much more holistic view of this. That what God is intending is that Abraham would go when he would be a blessing. But with that comes the idea of, Abraham, go and be that blessing. That's why, partly why I'm calling you out of the land of Ur. So, maybe we didn't need to get into all the weird details of that, but I think that's important because I'm going to camp on the side that I think there's more to this than just go so that you might be a blessing. But the idea that, Abraham, I want you to be a blessing, keep that in mind as you go. Go be that blessing to mankind. I think that's important, and I think that's going to be important because when we think about God asking us to go, we look at the command of the Great Commission, go, there's an element that we are expected to, To be a blessing to the world by taking the good news of the gospel to the rest of the world. It isn't just enough that we might go out there so that we might be a blessing. But no, go be that blessing. There's an expectation that we are too blessed. In fact, we're even told, what, with our enemies? When they hate us? We're to bless them. We're to pray for them. So, I'm going to hold on to this as... At least maintaining to some degree the command nature of that. I think there's a reason why Moses wrote it with the imperative. He didn't have to. But again, grammatically we can't solve that issue. But I think it's more than appropriate to see both sides of that. Go that he might be a blessing, but go so that he would be a blessing. Kind of a command. So, we find these... Two imperatives here. Just like there were promises associated with that first that first imperative go, there are blessings associated with the second imperative to be a blessing. The Lord would bless those who bless Abraham and subsequently Israel, but he would curse those who curse Abraham. Think about it from this way. Those that curse Israel would have God's blessings in many respect removed. From them. Ultimately, God would bless all the families of the earth through Abraham. We know that's the case. That's where our Messiah comes from. We see examples of this throughout history. Think about the number of nations that have persecuted Israel and the Jewish people throughout history. And ask yourself the question where are they today? Think about the great pharaohs of history and the pharaoh that locked up the Israelites, or the pharaohs that locked up the Israelites as slaves for 400 years. What happened to Pharaoh's army? what happened to Egypt as a whole in terms of its dominance in the world. Think about Haman from the scriptures. Think about the Philistines, the Assyrians, the Babylonians. Think about ancient Rome. Even Amy and I talked about this on the way here. Um, shortly before World War I, the Ottoman Empire controlled all of Israel. And basically they were defeated by Great Britain and Great Britain took over the land of what they call Palestine today, Israel. Okay? Great Britain ruled that area for a while. Um, Think about what happened to Germany and their persecution of the Jews. You know, God has a tendency to do exactly what he said here because all of these countries in Israel's past um, are pretty much bygone when you think about it. We know that ultimately that's the way this story ends too with God using Israel in the end times and the armies that come up against Israel and what does God do? He squashes them like a bug. So he tells him here, one of the promises with the second imperative about be a blessing is that God will bless those who bless Israel and curse those who curse Israel. Now, I have to be a little careful with this, and I could get in trouble for saying this. I'm going to say it anyway. We have a lot now where people will look at Israel, the Israel of today, and say, you know, we've got to be really careful with Israel, because if we curse Israel or don't support Israel, God's going to condemn us. I'll be real careful on how I say this. Israel still is living in disobedience to the Lord. I do believe that the Lord moved Israel back. I think there's something to be said about 1948, Israel taking the land. I think that's all in God's perfect plan. And I do believe we have to be careful in, in not supporting Israel. Because I do believe these promises apply. But it doesn't necessarily mean we have to sit back and just say... We should accept everything Israel always does and Israel is always right and can't speak openly and honestly. And I think there's a dialogue that needs to be a part of that. Israel still needs the Savior and God will ultimately redeem Israel when Israel begins to look to their Savior, Jesus Christ. So it's a much more nuanced line. I think we ought to be very careful as a nation. I think we ought to support Israel. But that doesn't mean that, that everything Israel does all the time is right. Okay. And so we have to be kind of careful with that too, especially from a Christian perspective. The Lord promised, so one of the promises here with the second imperative, be a blessing, is that the Lord would bless those who bless Israel and curse those who curse Israel. So we have kind of both a temporal and an earthly nature to these blessings if you think about it. Um, Ultimately in Abraham it says, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Turn to Genesis chapter 22. Go back to these verses again. Genesis 22, starting in verses 17, again, he says, I will greatly bless you and I will greatly multiply your seed. Jump down into verse, the second half of that, and your seed shall possess the gate of his enemies. I believe that's an eternal thing. That's a reference, I believe, to the Messiah because, again, I think it's better translated as his enemies. In your seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. I believe the seed there also is likely a reference to the Messiah. Some English translations translate that as his. I believe it should be translated that way as we've already mentioned here. And so we know that all of the earth, all the tribes of the earth, ultimately will be blessed through the coming of the Messiah, their hope for salvation. Turn to Acts chapter chapter 3. We'll see this reflected there. Another reason why I would understand this passage to refer singularly to the Messiah, Acts chapter three, verse twenty-five. Is that right? Nope. I got my references wrong here. I love Gar. I love Dustin looked it up for me. Turn to Galatians chapter three. I got to come back to that. Uh, Galatians, what's that? You just got there? Yeah, Galatians chapter 3. I hate it when I write down my references wrong. Especially once I look them back up. I'll go back there in a second. But Galatians chapter 3. That should be an easy one for you. Did I, did I read that right? Actually, I, oh, I mean, you know what? I'm in cha- this is that slimline Bible. I'm in chapter 4, but I can't tell them in chapter 4 because of the way it's broken up. Yeah, 325. Yep. It is 325. All right. It is... Um, it is you who are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant which God made with your father, saying to Abraham, and in your seed all the families of the earth shall be blessed. For you first God raised up his servant and sent him to bless you by turning every one of you from your wicked ways. Notice that Luke quotes here, or, or as he writes here in Peter's sermon, Peter quotes... The same passage back in Genesis chapter 22 that we just read. And he says, and in your seed, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And the seed there he's referring to, he says in verse 26, is the servant, Jesus Christ. And so it's through Jesus Christ, through this singular seed of Abraham's, that all of the earth will be blessed. It is an eternal spiritual blessing. Galatians chapter 3 we see something very similar thanks for helping me out with that like I said sometimes I think I need to go to a, back to my big thick Bible because it's easier to look at the passages but Galatians chapter 3 Come on. Galatians chapter 3 verses 6 through 9 even so Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness therefore be sure that it is those who are of faith who are the sons of Abraham, the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham saying, all the nations will be blessed in you. So when the Lord tells Abraham he will bless all the nations through Abraham, that's a reference to the gospel. It's a reference to the gospel. So when we have the second imperative for Abraham To go be a blessing. What's implied in that is the gospel of Jesus Christ. That Abraham's purpose in being called out of the land of Ur into the land of Canaan is ultimately to bring about God's redemptive plan in the gospel of Jesus Christ. So what's our takeaway from this first section? Well, I'm going to say it this way. Every human being is offered new life in Jesus Christ. But it requires, just like the calling of Abraham, that they leave something behind. It was required that Abraham leave his relatives, is what we're told here. Go from your father's house. Leave your land. Leave your father's house. Leave your relatives. Go to the land I'm going to give you. So God's call on Abraham's life to go and to be a blessing required that he leave all of that behind. Now, we may not be called to leave our homes or relatives or our families, necessarily. But, um, But we do have to leave our old lives of sin behind, don't we? We are called to new life in Christ. Dustin mentioned the epistles. The epistles are all about that. If you think about it, every one of the epistles is written to help us to leave that old life, that old person, that old way of sin behind and embrace the new life that God has called us to. And that's exactly what you see in Abraham. Jesus said that anybody who wants to follow him must deny themselves and do what? Pick up their cross and follow him. Titus chapter 2 verse 11 says, The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age. Turn to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4, starting at verse 20. But you did not learn Christ in this way, if indeed you have heard Him and have been taught in Him, just as the truth is in Jesus, that in reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lust of deceit, and that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and you put on the new self, which is in the likeness of God, has been created in righteousness and holiness and truth. We are called to new life. We're called to abandon the old person. To put on the new life. Salvation itself may indeed be a free gift of God's grace through faith, but there's no such thing as easy believism, folks. We have cheapened the gospel in the evangelical church today. We have made it as simple as, well, just say this prayer and you're saved and you're good to go. There's no talk of repentance. There's no talk of a change in life. There's no talk of leaving anything behind. I'm not talking about works. It's still purely... A gift of God's grace by faith, but there's an expectation that life will change. It will be different. And we've cheapened that. We do not get to experience the new abundant life Jesus promised us without giving up something. And Abraham had to do that. So that's our first takeaway. The second takeaway is that those of us who place our faith and trust in Jesus Christ are not merely to be recipients of God's blessings, we're to be a conduit for God's blessings to the world. God doesn't just expect that we'll receive his blessings. We're to be a blessing. We're to give a blessing. There's no question that the body of Christ, the church, has been a blessing to the world. I've got a whole sheet here listed of things that the church has accomplished in the world since its founding 2,000 years ago. Think about, I mean, how how, how many hospitals can you think of in the Columbus area? Somebody give me some of their names. Riverside what though? What's the full name? Riverside Methodist. What's another one? Mount Carmel. Mount Carmel is what? Based on it's Catholic, okay? Yeah. Hospital after hospital after hospital in this nation were started by churches. Think about the public school system. It was started ultimately. They met in churches. It was run by churches. Adoption agencies. When you start calculating the number of adoption agencies there are in the United States, you know, I don't remember the exact numbers here. But the number that are started by Christian agencies, most of your adoption agencies initially were run by Christian organizations, started by Christian organizations. Most of them are still managed and run and controlled by Christian organizations. Food kitchens, all kinds of stuff. Universities. Princeton and Harvard all have their anchor, their start as seminaries and Bible colleges. The church has impacted the world tremendously and not just here in the United States but all over. We are not just to be recipients we are to be conduits of God's blessings. And that is certainly true when it comes to the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's not enough that we've received salvation. We're expected to now bring salvation to those that don't have it. We've received God's blessings. Now it's our turn to to return that and to be a blessing and so much like Abraham who was called to leave and called to be a blessing we too are called to leave our old lives behind and we're also to be a blessing of others turn to Matthew chapter thir- or chapter 5 Matthew chapter 5 and I'm falling behind here today but we'll make it through Matthew chapter 5 Have you jump down to verse 13 oops Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 13. Jesus' words. You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt has become tasteless, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under foot by men. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket. But on a lampstand. And it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify the Father who is in heaven. The point of the church is to be a light, to be salt. We shouldn't just be recipients of God's blessings, but should ultimately be conduits, just like he expected Abraham. Now, let's move on to the rest of our chapter 12. We're going to see now that Abraham demonstrated his faith through obedience and worship, and that's going to be important for us as well. I want to first look at Abraham's obedience. Chapter 12, verses 4 and 5. So Abraham went forth as the Lord had spoken to him, and Lot went with him. Now Abraham was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. Abraham took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his nephew, and all their possessions which they had accumulated, and the persons which they had acquired in Haran, and they set out for the land of Canaan. Thus they came to the land of Canaan. God called Abraham while he was in the land of Ur. He stopped off at Haran, let his father Pass along, buried him. But then he continued on the journey for which God had actually called him. We're not given the amount of time. We're just told that he ultimately did it. The author of Hebrews refers to what Abraham did as an act of faith. Turn to Hebrews chapter 11. <coughs> Hebrews chapter 11. Just jump down into verses 8 through 10. By faith Abraham went or Abraham when he was called obeyed by going out to a place which he was to receive for an inheritance and he went out not knowing where he was going by faith he lived as an alien in the land of promise remember it was filled with Canaanites as in a foreign land dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob fellow heirs of the same promise for he was looking for the city which has foundations whose architect and builder is God and so the author of Hebrews attributes what Abraham did as an act of faith, but it was an act of obedience. He didn't know where he was going, didn't know what to expect, what to find. Can you imagine that for a second? You go, if God were to reach down to your life right now and say, I want you to go from where you're at to a land that I'm going to show you, just start walking. I'll tell you as you get moving where we're actually going. Would you pack your bags and go? Would you leave everything you've known behind? That's often missionaries face. There was a family I lived with for a number, of, or a couple of years when I was in Wausau. and their daughter, Katie, namesake of my own daughter, um, became a missionary. I believe it was New Guinea, if I remember right. Um, recently died, um, young woman with two kids at home and a husband, but watching her post stuff of what it was like to completely leave the comfort of Warsaw, Wisconsin and to literally go live in practically what was a hut with no running water and no washing machines and everything else and how difficult that transition was. But it was something they were willing to do because God called them to do it. And they had a tremendous ministry while they were there. That's an act of faith but it requires obedience. So Abraham demonstrated his, his faith His willingness to believe and to trust God through obedience, doing what the Lord asked him to do. He also demonstrated his faith through worship. If you look at verses 6 through 9 of chapter 12, Genesis chapter 12, verses 6 through 9. Abraham passed through the land as far as the site of Shechem to the oak of Morah. Now the Canaanite was in the land at the time. The Lord appeared to Abraham and said, To your descendants I will give this land. So he built an altar there to the Lord who had appeared to him. Then he proceeded from there to the mountain on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and I on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. Abraham journeyed on, continuing toward the Negev. So what we find here is twice in this passage we see that Abram built an altar. What's the purpose of an altar? It's worship. Now it's not mentioned with the first building of the altar that he worshipped there, but we should assume he did because that's why you build an altar. But it does tell us specifically he worshipped at the second altar. Again, we can assume that was the case with the first. The first altar was at a place called Shechem. at about 45 miles northwest of Jerusalem. And it pretty much puts that altar right smack dab in the middle of the land of Canaan. I mean, you could draw a big circle, and boom, right there, smack dab in the middle of Canaan. Now, why might this have been important? Well, the Bible tells us that the Canaanites were in the land at that time. I believe that's not just a little side comment. He's telling us something about that. The Hebrew word for "mora," which is mentioned in the text here, means teacher, and some suggest that a way to translate this is the terebinth, or the oak of the teacher. We find later in Judges chapter 9, That this particular area was where the diviner's oak, or the oak of the tree of the diviners was located. This site where Abraham built his altar was a Canaanite high place. It was a place where they came to worship their gods. And it's interesting that he comes there and he builds an altar to the Lord, which means that it's not just a place to worship, it's a declaration of who he worshipped. And so he builds an altar right smack dab there in the middle of of probably one of the most important Canaanite high places at the time and builds an altar to Yahweh right there. What a declaration that must have been from the Canaanites living in the land. This foreigner comes in and says, Oh, the Lord sent me here. Who? Yahweh. And he builds an altar there, which becomes a permanent structure of sorts, does it not? So how appropriate that Adam would erect an altar right there in the middle of the polytheistic Canaanites, declaring the name of Yahweh. And it says that he called upon the name of the Lord there. He was not afraid to declare his worship, his commitment to the Lord Yahweh right there. So what's our takeaway with this? I'll give you two of them. first one is that genuine faith is demonstrated through both worship and obedience. I think sometimes we forget that here. I'm not meaning us specifically, but just in general as Christians, sometimes all well, the emphasis is placed on worship but nothing on obedience. And I think we see that more and more today. Where more and more professing Christians think that they can show up for worship on a Sunday morning and that's all that's necessary. But the rest of the week there's no obedience to Christ or His convictions, His theology, His teachings, His doctrines, His commands. Sometimes the church looks just like the rest of the world. I've been reading a book. I'm not sure what to make of it quite yet. It's written by a guy named Tim Alberta. It's called The Kingdom of the Power and the Glory and it deals with the nature of the evangelical church today and how in so many segments of the evangelical church politics are more important than the gospel it's challenging because some of what he's saying is pretty disturbing quite disturbing and he interviews some high ranking people like Jeffress and Pastor Locke and some of these others that keep showing up that are leading pastors in the nation but also leading political figures and some of what they have shared with him is very disturbing Now, I don't necessarily accept everything he's saying. I don't know that all of his assessments are always exactly correct, but there's a number of very disturbing things in there that he talks about how in the evangelical church today, many have abandoned Christian principles because we've got to do whatever we have to to win. And we suspend many of our Christian principles. In many churches, the gospel has become less important than political victories. And so again, much of it is very disturbing. Jesus specifically commanded... Obedience in his great commission. Listen to what he says in Matthew 28. He says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. But then look at this. Teaching them to what? Observe all that I have commanded to you. Part of discipleship is teaching people to obey Jesus Christ. Obedience is critical to our walk of faith. You cannot have faith in Jesus Christ without obedience, folks. It isn't faith. Abraham demonstrated that by going and doing exactly what the Lord said. Jesus commands it. In fact, listen to what he said in John chapter 3. He who believes in the Son has eternal life. That's good news. But he who does not, oh, this is interesting, obey the Son will not see life. Did you catch that? Jesus himself said, if you believe in the Son, you have eternal life, but only if you obey the Son. He's not talking works. He's simply saying that genuine faith requires obedience. When we don't preach that, we're preaching a false gospel. Again, it's not about works. It's that when you genuinely express faith in God, obedience has to follow that. Otherwise, it's not faith. So that's the first takeaway. The second takeaway from this last section is that just as Abraham declared his relationship to the one true God by building altars and worshiping, In the midst of this Canaanite place, our obedience and worship declares to the unsaved world our relationship with God. You realize that the world, when they look at us, needs to see more than just our worship on Sunday mornings? They need to see our obedience to Jesus Christ. That speaks volumes to the world around us. It is a declaration of what's important to us. But it declares our faith. So it isn't just our worship. It's living in obedience to Jesus Christ. The world needs to see that. That is our declaration to this world of who we worship and who we love. Is it not? I think that's oftentimes where the church sort of fails today. Is They look at us and they see hypocrites because we don't obey. They see us show up for church on a Sunday morning but then they listen to our language and our behavior in the rest of the week. Do you realize you're only here one day a week for about an hour and a half to two hours? You spend, I don't kind of do the math in my head, but do the math on the rest of that. How much of the rest of that time do you spend out in the world living out your faith in Jesus Christ? What is the world going to see most? Your time here on Sunday morning? Is that going to speak more than the way you behave and act and treat people during the week? Absolutely not. They could care less if you go to church on a Sunday morning when you don't act like a follower of Jesus Christ during the week. Now granted, we'll be hated for it, And they'll still call us hypocrites, even if we were perfect at our obedience, but we're still called to obey. Let God deal with the rest of that. But you know what leads people to Christ? It's not the fact that we go to church on a Sunday morning, it's that they see you every day of the week living out your faith in Jesus Christ and ask questions. So we need to make sure that we demonstrate not just worship, but obedience to the world around us. That's how we be a blessing. I'll just finish reading chapter 12. Now there was a famine in the land, so Abraham went down to Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was severe in the land. It came about when he came near to Egypt that he said to his wife Sarai, See now I know that you are a beautiful woman. Now the reason I wanted to just finish on that is because of what it says in verse 10. Verse 10. I'm sorry, verse 9. And Abraham journeyed on, continuing toward the Negev. He went down to the southern part of the land of Canaan, probably because God wanted him to see all of it. From there, he ultimately ends up into Egypt. But then he comes back to the land of Canaan in obedience to God. So, I think what this passage ultimately we have to be reminded of is that we can't overlook the fact that this really isn't about Abraham as much as it is about God. God reached down into Abraham's life probably a polytheist. Reached down into his life and says, I'm going to take you and I'm going to ask you to trust me. I'm going to send you to the land of Canaan where you can trust me to bless you but also for you to be a blessing. And it's through the blessing of you that I will bless the entire nation, uh, the entire world, ultimately through the seed that will bring salvation to everyone. It's part of the gospel. That's really what this is about. God's redemptive plan being described right here in the calling of Abraham. And I love the parallels to us. We're the recipients of what God did back here in Genesis chapter 12, are we not? The reason you and I know Jesus Christ is because God did the same thing for us. While we were yet sinners, while we were enemies of God, he reached down and saved us just like he did Abraham. Amen to that. It's really no different. And just as God looked at Abraham and expected him now to go, to leave behind certain things, we're expected to leave our old lives behind so that God might bless us and so that we might be a blessing to others. Just as we received the gospel, now we're expected to propagate the gospel. Just as we were called to leave our old lives behind, we now live in obedience and worship and faith with him. Why? So that we might ultimately accomplish what God started with Abraham here, that the world might be blessed through his seed. We're the recipients of that, and we now are the ones who... Teach the rest of the world about that. Amen?